So every night at summer camp ended the same way, with all the staff and kids crowded into the activity barn in our pajamas. Everybody had to have brushed their teeth already, and the lights were mostly off, except for one lamp over the shoulder of the reader. Sometimes if it was chilly, there was a fire in the fireplace. We read chapter books, and it was tricky because they had to be books that would be interesting enough for the 12-year-olds and compelling enough for the 7-year-olds and kind of everybody in between. Mostly we picked classic books and award winners. So one summer we were reading the Newbery award-winning book, The Giver, by Lois Lowry. This is a book that Wikipedia describes accurately as set in apparently a utopia, which turns out to be... Bum, 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 a dystopia. Okay, so that's the Lois Lowry book. And, and atypically, none of the adults at camp that summer had read the book. We knew that it was well-regarded, and so night after night, chapter by chapter, we read about this little utopian eh, town where the greatest punishment was to be released. So I've been thinking of this with our series, I Shall Be Released, released in the book to Elsewhere, out of town maybe, or, or into the wilderness beyond the boundaries. Released, make an error that threatened the lives of others in this little book. Released, commit a crime for a third, a third offense. Released, and the only time that release wasn't a punishment was at the end of, the li of life, when the release of the elderly was a time of celebration for a life well and fully lived. And looking back, I do not know how we didn't see it coming. In the book, release is such an important idea that it's forbidden to joke about. A kid in the book is kind of teasing another kid during a game and yelled, that's it, Asher, you're released, and got in big trouble, stern talking to after the game, had to apologize. Nonetheless, at camp that session, our kids did joke about it, and just like that, too. Shirk on dish duty, careful, you're going to be released. So finally, we got to chapter 19, and, and yes, I had to look it up, but Carl, our beloved camp director, was sitting on the hearth when we got to chapter 19, which is the chapter where the main character and all of us teenaged camp counselors and all of the 7 to 12-year-olds found out that in The Giver, to be released is to die, one way or another. I mean, it is, after all, a dystopian book. I wonder if you already know, or if I've told you, the terrible secret that many pastors prefer a funeral to a wedding. It's true. I mean, it's true for me. I won't speak for Vince. And, and to be clear, it's, it's not true that I or any other pastor I know prefers death to marriage. I'm, I'm like very glad when people fall in love. I'm very glad when people want to commit to each other publicly. And also doing weddings for people who I know is like a billion times better than doing a funeral for people that I know. Given a choice about any of you, I would much prefer you to get married. But in terms of the liturgy and the work of preparing for the service, especially for people I don't know, I do prefer a funeral to a wedding. At both a funeral and a wedding, something happens. Like the service itself does something that I believe is real and I believe matters. In a wedding, even though you don't have to get married at all and can easily get married by signing a piece of paper, 
When you choose instead to have a service in which friends and family participate, in which you publicly state your intentions to each other and make promises, something happens. There's this moment in a wedding service that's my favorite. It happens a little bit earlier than everyone expects, like it's a few beats before people start kissing each other, when the officiant announces that by the words they've said, and by joining their hands, and by exchanging their rings, and by their love, the people are now married. By language and ritual and gesture, something has changed. And that's great. And the reason it's not great, again, only for me, not for Vince, and if you're thinking of getting married, I would love to do your wedding. Um, that's wonderful. I'm really happy for you. The reason that it's not great is that some people want that service, wherein something changes, to be as short as possible, and or they just want to get to the party, which is fine, and or they don't actually care at all, sort of fine, and or they don't think that a thing actually does happen. So why? So when people, I do help get ready for their weddings, which again, I do, gladly. There's a question I ask before we ask anything else about the readings or the music or the order of the dang procession. It's a question that I will ask you if you, against mounting odds, ask me to do your wedding. <laughs> the question I start with is why? Why do you want to have a ceremony? When you could, after all, get married legally with a piece of paper and have the truly great party you're dreaming of, and I wouldn't have to be involved at all. So at a funeral, something also happens. And what happens at a funeral is also done by language and ritual and gesture. And, and the way that it happens there is something that no one has been planning or dreaming of sometimes since they were a kid. What happens at a funeral is something that a lot of people don't know about or care about either. You just don't think about it. No one is worried about how long a funeral service will go, which is actually my job. What happens is that I, as a pastor, get a call that something terrible has happened. And usually it has not happened to me, um, but to the person on the other end of the phone. And often that person does not know what comes next, like how to plan a funeral. But I do. I know mostly what questions to ask. And I know the thing that we'll all make happen together, just by language and ritual and gesture. And I know it matters. I know it's something that can't happen any other way. I got a text on Christmas Eve 2019. Vince and I were out here in what we call the transept, getting ready for the service. My best friend texted to say that she knew I was probably in the middle of getting ready for the service, but that she had a question for me. And that's all she said, and I, I showed the phone to Vince. Yeah, he said, that's hard. The terrible thing had not happened yet, or um, it was in the middle of happening, which is that my best friend's dad was dying. And in the last month of his life, he had surprised the whole family and to no small degree horrified them by announcing that he wanted two unprecedented things for their family. One, he wanted to be buried, and two, he wanted a funeral service. At first, they thought he must be confused, or maybe it was the drugs, or this kind of fog of this part of his life. No one in the family believed in having funerals. No one believed in burials. That's not how they did it. But he insisted, and it was not his confusion or the drugs, and so the family found themselves needing to have a funeral. And I knew on Christmas Eve 2019 that that was the question. Would I officiate the funeral that they did not 
for so many reasons, want to have. When her dad, who's a guy I met only once, and, and I marveled when he smiled, oh my God, that's my best friend's smile. When her dad died a couple of weeks later, preparing for the funeral was one of the hardest things I'd ever done. I looked back in our archives to see if either Vince or I have ever preached from the book of Chronicles, and we haven't, ever, in five and a half years. First Chronicles doesn't even show up anywhere in the lectionary, which is that three-year cycle of readings that takes us more or less through the Bible. Here's why I think that is. For one thing, Chronicles, per the title, it's just a lot of lists. It's like just getting down what purport to be the facts. And for another thing, it's kind of just a recap of like First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel and a bunch of other books. The part that Vince read is from a prayer that King David, the first king of Israel, prays. Um, not blessing the temple, which wasn't built yet, but blessing the materials from which the temple would be built. Blessing the offerings that would make building the temple possible. Chronicles is that kind of book. Like we skip to the beginning of the chapter where David enumerates the quantities of stone and kinds of stone and amounts of money and in what denominations, and I'm not kidding, um, the gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver and iron for the things of iron and wood for the things of wood. Like this is in front of a whole gathering, an assembly of the leaders of the people who surely must have wondered how long was this going to go on and when were they going to get to the after party. And then after all of that, David prayed, blessing God, giving honor to God in the kind of long-winded pastoral prayer style that I grew up with, like telling a God, a, God a bunch of things about God, surely make God say like, I know, I'm God. And, and then, after getting incredibly specific about all of it, the materials and who and how God is, David says, anyway, who are we even to consider this stuff an offering at all? It all comes from you, and anything we've given you is already your own, and all the abundance we've provided for building you a house comes from your own hand and is all your own, at which point, if the leaders weren't already bored and frustrated before at the futility of the gathering, surely some of them were like, then why, y'all? Oh, and then, we did read this part, David adds, also, our days on earth are like a shadow and there is no hope. <laughs> As a culture, like well beyond my friend's family, we've decided that funerals are a big downer. Like more and more, everyone agrees, if we're gonna gather at all, what we need is a celebration of life. Wear bright colors, tell funny, warm stories. But for me, you know, I'm a storyteller. As much as I love that, that's not what I value about a funeral. That's not what I think is important. That's not what I think happens. For one thing, those stories are gonna get told at lunch and tonight and in the days to come and in the years to come. The thing that happens at a funeral, when it happens, happens in language and ritual and gesture. So when I sat down to try to prepare the service for my best friend's dad, even though they're not religious at all, I went to the old language. And thinking of the funeral services that I've performed, I remember this moment toward the end of the service that is my favorite, the heart of the thing. There's a moment toward the end of the service, a few beats before the end, where you invite the people to stand and there's that quiet but not silent susurrus. 
as people rise. And we pray the prayer of commendation. So for my best friend's dad's service, I wrote and then I said, there's a churchy thing that happens here called a prayer of commendation, and we're not going to do it. But I do want you to invite me in commending Bruce to the force of life and love and creativity from which he came. Like, you can ask me to do a non-religious service, but this is as close as I can get. The formal prayer of commendation starts like David's prayer, telling God who God is and what's God, what God is like. Blessed are you, O God and parent of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whose great mercy we have been born anew into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The prayer asks God to give to the one who has died rest. And then it does the thing it does. We do the thing we do. Into your hands, O merciful Savior, we commend your servant and we say their name. We commend your servant. Acknowledge them, we pray. A sheep of your own fold, a lamb of your own flock, a child of your own redeeming. Receive them into the arms of your mercy, into the blessed rest of everlasting peace, and into the glorious company of all your saints in the light. Amen. We give back to God what is God's own. And who are we to consider this a commendation at all? It's not part of traditional Christian theology and not part of my own theology that the Spirit needs us to do this blessing, this commending in some way. I don't believe personally that our journey to God is enabled by this prayer or impeded by its absence. I don't believe that God is just waiting to hear one more time who we think God is and whether we commend our loved one to them. I do not believe that it is only upon our deaths that we are in the hands of God, but that we have come into this life and do live this life and pass out of it like some more substantial shadows entirely in the hands of God. We are at every moment coming from our source, at every moment returning to it. And who are we to say it? What do we think is achieved by, what do I think happens when we say it? In the funeral parlor where no one wanted to be and no one who loved him ever thought they'd be, we gathered to commend my best friend's dad to the source from which he came. Bruce, I said, standing with people who knew and loved him best. Bruce, I said, not addressing him exactly, Bruce, made of creativity and humor, of curiosity and love, of impish joy, that grin. Made for love and relationships, for long days when the family did nothing but read. Made for words and language, of quick wit and clever turns of phrase. Made for projects and working with his hands in clay and wood. Bruce, we commend you to the source from which you came, to the rest for which you longed and to the love by which we carry you with us, built of the love which you gave. I didn't say amen. It was not, of course, a prayer. Later, my best friend told me that her mother said on their way home from the funeral lunch that she understands why people have funeral services. There's really something to it, she said. We didn't that day release Bruce's spirit. His journey began before any of us knew him, and he traveled on in ways that are still unknown to me, to us. 
We do not, whenever we pray any version of this prayer of commendation, tell God anything that God does not already know. But after King David says, who are we really to give anything to you? David also says that God knows our hearts and takes pleasure in the uprightness of our hearts and that in the uprightness of his own heart, he had freely offered to God all of these things, which, yes, are already God's. But he adds that he's seen God's people present with him, offering freely and joyously to God as well. He's almost at the end of this very long prayer when he asks God to keep those purposes and thoughts always in the hearts of the people to keep their hearts directed toward God. Too few years after the summer that we read the Lois Lowry, I was in a gym with hundreds of other people for the funeral service of our beloved camp director, Carl. A lifelong Quaker, his service contained no formal liturgy, no prayer of commendation. We sat together and sang together, and yes, we told warm, funny stories about him. It seems like one of the things that's true about God, that God, yes, already knows and doesn't need me to say, is that God delights in our giving to God that which is not ours to give. That the act of gathering together freely and joyly with generosity and truth, it does something. There's really something to it.